Ignition sequence start. Six, five. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. I'm your friendly space medicine-obsessed co-host, Eleanor Rangers, along with Emily Carney, our very own space historian. And this podcast is part two of our discussion with Dr. Jim Logan on Space Station Freedom's medical capabilities. Jim had a 20-year career at NASA, including Chief of Flight Medicine and Chief of Medical Operations at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. He served as Mission Control Surgeon, Deputy Crew Surgeon, or Crew Surgeon for 25 Space Shuttle missions, and Project Manager for the Space Station Freedom Medical Facility, developing the initial design for a telemedicine-based in-flight medical delivery system for long-duration missions. Let's pick up the discussion from where we paused from part one of our interview. What was being planned in terms of the preventive, diagnostic, and therapeutic capabilities that would be uh, within the health maintenance? Well, the preventive characteristics, really, uh, most of those occurred on the ground, and that was in the sense of, of monitoring the astronaut population in crew selection. But the countermeasures, the exercise devices, uh, that was something that helped, and that you had on uh, on flight. You know, you had your systems to make sure they had clean food and clean water. That's preventive. For the diagnostic capability, you wanted at least basic diagnostic laboratory capability. And what we basically came upon was to have the kind of capability lab-wise that you would expect in kind of an urban acute care facility. And that I mean, would include what? And that I mean, like in a, a, a corner a, a dock in the box. So you would have the ability to take blood. You'd have the ability to analyze blood and urine. We initially talked about an imaging modality, but it became very obvious to us, at least in Space Station Freedom, that that was a bridge too far. And so eventually we settled on ultrasound. And we knew we were going to have a, a, a research, a, some research equipment on board that was ultrasound device that the academics were going to use that had pretty good capability. And if you could train a crew member in, to basically use the transducer and be guided in real time by an ultrasonographer on the ground, that the crew could probably do, perform a pretty decent ultrasound and then downlink it. Uh, and in some cases, you could actually see what was going on live. And so that became our go-to imaging modality. And it was right about that time that the so-called FAST exam, uh, you know, research for that was being pioneered in emergency rooms across the country. So that ended up being a pretty good uh, decision because there was there was really no way with the technology of the time that you could do the the functional equivalent of an X-ray, and even if you did, it, you know you'd have to downlink it, and um, you know Eleanor, you and I both know that if you put 13 radiologists in a room to look at a at an X-ray, you're going to get 13 different uh, reports. You know, and, and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, but the the thing that we used to say was the national flower of radiology was the hedge. 
And we, we needed something that we felt like we could upgrade over time and that there was an increasing experience on the ground of using, and that tended to be ultrasound. Was there also um, hyperbaric capability? That's an interesting board? story. Uh, personally, I tried to get the system to adopt the approach of using one of the airlocks as a combination airlock and hyperbaric treatment facility. Now, it became really obvious when we started running the numbers on weights and volumes that we really couldn't use what we would call true hyperbaric pressures. In other words, you, you, know, you, you couldn't really do a treatment table six, for instance, in, a, in an airlock. But um, so that possibility was kind of eliminated pretty quickly. And then we decided that it might be possible to actually use the spacesuit as a kind of a poor man's hyperbaric unit. And the way that finally um, came out was that we had a, a piece of equipment called the BTA. It was the Benz Treatment Apparatus. And you could use the suit to basically overpressurize a crew member by about 8 PSI using the Benz treatment apparatus above ambient. Now, you know, the spacesuit protects the crew member to about 4.3 PSI above ambient when you're in the vacuum of space. But if you did that on the inside of the space station at sea level equivalent pressures, then you could bump it on up to 22, 23 PSI, some, somewhere around there. So it's a little bit like the gamma bag yes. concept. And, and, of course, but, but even still, philosophically, in most hyperbaric chambers, if you have a significant event that you're using hyperbaric oxygen for, you need a tender and, uh, to tend to the patient. And you can't put the tender, you can't put the patient and the tender inside the spacesuit. So it really was a poor man's hyperbaric treatment facility, but, but it, was a, it was a pretty good compromise. And the idea was... The most likely operational scenario that you'd get somebody with decompression sickness is during an EVA. So if you could get them into the airlock and pressurize the airlock and get the helmet off, you would have automatically gone from 4.3 PSI to 14.7 PSI. And then if you could use the Benz treatment apparatus and go another 8 PSI above that, that, that was pretty good. And so that ended up being a compromise between the engineering realities and the, and the medical requirements. What about some other things like uh, dental, dental care? Dental care was interesting. Uh, in, in Skylab, the, the, the crew got extensive training in, in dental care. And what they learned how to do was to extract a uh, tooth. Because if somebody had a toothache, mm. uh, the idea in Skylab was you just pull the tooth. And if you can pull the tooth and pack the wound, uh, problem solved. Now, it's not very cosmetic, um, but you can fix that when you get back on the, on the ground. So if you had, a, if you had an abscess, for, for example, uh, you just pulled the uh, tooth, and we train the two crew medical officers on Skylab how to perform anesthesia and how to extract the, the tooth and to how to do post-extraction care of the, of the wound. And, and those, guys, those guys actually went to emergency rooms in Houston and actually performed that on a few patients as part of their training. Oh, wow. 
what what are your thoughts just extrapolating that? I've actually read where, you know, in planning for uh, interplanetary missions, that maybe it's just easier to prophylactically pull everyone's teeth so they wear dentures and, you know, do an appendectomy, things that would have a high amount of morbidity if they actually occurred, you know, during that that exploration mission. Any any thoughts on that? Was that ever discussed? We discussed uh, that extensively during Freedom, space station planning for space station freedom in the 80s. Uh, because there was a lot of thoughts, especially among the engineer, of, look, if you're worried about appendicitis, just take out the, the appendix. But based on the data of the time, we were able to show that the mortality and morbidity of taking out a normal um, appendix, besides the fact that that's unethical, uh, but if you did that, you actually placed a patient from a low-risk category of getting appendicitis as an adult to a higher-risk category of getting an intestinal destruction or some type of post-operative problem um, as a result of the appendectomy. Now, those data may be different now, but when we looked at those data in the 80s, uh, we were able to pretty much nix that idea. Plus, we were we were really uncomfortable. I was personally uncomfortable, and the medical establishment, the clinical medical establishment, was uncomfortable about the idea of, of prophylactically taking out a normal appendix. We just didn't think it was the uh, the moral thing to do. We didn't think it was ethical because as as you know anesthesia carries um, some risk well one final question about sort of the supply and capabilities uh that's near and dear to my heart is uh pharmacy and i'm curious about sort of you know pharmacy how that was stocked central supply did you i did you have iv fluid uh capability up there or was that being yeah covered? we were looking at uh the capability of having being able to produce iv fluid as you needed it beyond the first couple of bags so we had bags of iv fluid but it wouldn't last you very long e- even for maintenance fluid uh it wouldn't last you more than than a day or at the max two but we were looking at capability that would take space station potable water and produce IV fluid that then you could dissolve the things into it that you needed to and mix it up and basically have the equivalent of Ringer's lactate or normal saline or half or half normal saline. So we actually looked at technology to, to do that, and that was going to be the, the approach. On the ISS, my understanding is they still have IV bags that have obviously not expired, and that's what they'll use. I don't think they have capability to make IV fluid as they as they need it. Uh, one of the problems with the with the pharmacy was the pharmacy took up weight and volume, and there were medical kits on board the Gemini capsules and the Apollo spacecraft, and even on the shuttle we had a medical kit that was mostly. Uh, pharmaceuticals. And Eleanor, you know more about this than I do, so really I should be asking you the questions on this one. But medicines appear to lose some of their potency at an accelerated rate in in space than they do on, on the ground. Yeah, and so we were correct. concerned about that. Ideally, um, if you go to the you know, fast forward to the to an interplanetary phase of human spaceflight. Ideally, you'd like to be able to make the pharmaceuticals on board as you need them. 
And so for that, you'd have to have some kind of feedstock and you'd have to have some kind of technology that, that could do that. But that is getting to be less and less of a pipe dream as time goes on. And I think eventually that's the capability that will be used for routine interplanetary spaceflight. One, one related question. Was there a freezer or refrigeration plan no. on, on Freedom? And that was one of the constraints that we really didn't like. But nonetheless, those were the constraints we were given by the, by the program. What about staffing? Now, I know you mentioned that, and I know I, I don't know if this kind of is the same as it has been throughout the the space program. But two med- were there two medical officers? Or was a physician going to be planned to fly on on Freedom? Um, you know, what a little bit maybe about training that that individuals would undergo if they were non. Yeah, this is an interesting question that that gets into the realm of the intersection between kind of planning slash logic slash politics. And so here's here's the problem. And I can say this now since I'm no longer with the agency. So here's the bottom line of how that shakes out. If you're an engineer or a pilot and you become an astronaut, you can still be a pilot or an engineer. From the day you get it, if you're a physician and you apply to be an astronaut, from the day you are selected to be an astronaut, you cease doing anything in medicine from that day forward. In the shuttle program, the astronaut physicians, the, the, the applicants who were physicians that were selected as astronauts, they were all mission specialists, and they functioned as mission specialists, but they didn't do any medicine. So they didn't really stay current. Now, there were some exceptions. There were some some astronaut physicians that did medicine on the side and kept up their clinical, you know, they, they, they maintain their clinical currency by working in emergency rooms on the side. Bill Fisher is uh, somebody that comes to mind that did that. But most, if not all, the physician astronauts ceased doing anything relevant in medicine from the day they became an astronaut. So what you ended up with over a course of time were these so-called astronaut physicians that were, quite frankly, physicians in name only. They had an MD behind their name, but they hadn't maintained their clinical currency in years. And some of them really never actually completed a uh, residency. Dave Wolf, for example, was an engineer physician, and he had an MD behind his name. He did graduate from medical school. And he may have completed an internship, but I don't think he completed a residency. And so after a while, you you realize that even though you have this cadre of astronauts who are physicians, they're really not clinically current. And so how do you fix that? I mean, you would think that an interplanetary mission I mean, you can go all the way back in science fiction, uh, all the way back to Forbidden Planet in the mid-60s, you know, or Star Trek or any of them, and those science fiction writers had it figured out. One member of the crew was a physician, a clinically current physician. And those of us that wanted that to be part of the mission architecture felt like that that physician should be a surgeon. 
And the reason was it was easier to turn a surgeon into an internist than it is turning an internist into a surgeon. And you could become an internist if you were a surgeon, clinically current surgeon, you could become a pretty darn good internist with help from the ground. But you can't do the reverse. You can't turn an internist into a surgeon with help from the ground. Now, in the early 2000s, we actually came up with a program that would have resulted, had it been implemented, into a cadre of physician astronauts, all of which would have maintained their clinical currency. And we actually presented that to management. Now, what do you think management's decision was? Probably a big no. Not only no, but hell no. And, and the prime movers of that no was the astronaut corps. And the really? reason was the astronaut corps was still kind of managed by what I would call the old guard. And in the old guard, they wanted to keep medicine as far away from the crew as possible. And, it, and until yeah, that thanks. philosophy matures... Uh, you're never going to get a clinically current member of an interplanetary crew that is a physician. And I think, it, personally, I think that's a big problem. What do you think of uh, flying a nurse, like an advanced practice nurse, or a PA, or a paramedic? I know some of these have been have been proposed, you know, particularly by non-NASA space enthusiasts. You know, I, I know really with the caveat, it sounds like there was a bias more towards let's have some with surgical capabilities so that this question may be a moot point, but just kind of throwing that well, out there. Of course, there somebody discussion. who was a nurse practitioner or a PA would be much better, especially if they were clinical current, uh, clinically current, than a, an astronaut that we do, you know, six months of intermittent training to try to turn them into a crew medical officer. And, and by the way, the training for crew medical officer is mostly – they they become our eyes and ears in flight. So most of the training refers to giving them an idea of how to approach a patient, how to describe symptoms, how to do a physical exam, how to describe what they're seeing. So I'd be all for uh, having a nurse practitioner or a PA, uh, but but I think there's really no justifiable argument against the concept of having a true surgeon on board because that person, male or female, would be able to take care of the largest range of anticipated medical conditions. And that statement that I just made is very hard to argue with once you really think through the problem. Why not start a program in which you are train a, a young cadre, both men and women, who are maintain their clinical currency and their surgical skills, but who are also legitimate and official astronauts. But that concept never has has attained any real traction. I mean, obviously, you're talking to someone who's biased in favor of having someone trained with some advanced level training in that regard. But, you know, it does sound a little bit like, you know, the teacher in space, where originally it was going to be someone who was just a teacher, had very minimal uh, astronaut training, but then that was sort of revamped in the wake of the Challenger disaster. So I don't know whether someday this 
concept can be revisited using that concept of the teacher in space and how that evolved over time, where you've got the, it's sort of, the, you know, astronaut skills plus. Well, un- unfortunately, in, in my opinion, based on my experience at NASA, there won't be any traction with the idea I just described until we have an unnecessary mission termination due to a medical contingency or, God forbid, an unnecessary in-flight medical death. Well, speaking of death, I've been meaning to ask, what was discussed if someone did pass away during the mission? How was that body going to be handled, uh, and how quickly would that body be brought back? Well, again, that's an excellent question. And one of the things that I lobbied for all the time that I was at NASA was for a body bag in flight. You needed some kind of technology, some kind of capability to look at what you were going to, what are you going to do if you end up with a dead body in flight? Just from a health and hygiene standpoint, you've got to isolate that body from the rest of the crew. But from a legalistic standpoint, you would also like to be able to do an autopsy on that body to figure out exactly what happened medically. Yeah. And so, again, looking at the risk, we, f- we felt like that the most likely scenario was probably a death associated with a, an EVA, in which case you could use the spacesuit as a body bag to isolate the body from the crew and vice versa. And also, if you had an in-flight death during an EVA in a spacesuit, not only do you want to do an autopsy on the body, you want to do an autopsy on the suit. And ideally, you don't want to interrupt that unit of the, of the suit and the body. You'd like to be able to look at both of them. So we put out some feelers to the Armed Forces Institute of the Pathology, if I remember correctly, looking at, is there anything that we could do? If we had an in-flight death due to an EVA, is there anything we could do to preparing the body or putting a different kind of atmosphere? Because remember, the atmosphere in the suit is 100% oxygen. That's probably not good from a, a, decompose, a decomposing standpoint. And so is there anything you could use that would kind of stabilize the body or help stabilize the body until you could bring the body back down to earth to do a, a, a functional autopsy? The problem is I never could get NASA management to even accept the requirement that you needed a body bag. There is no body bag on the ISS that I know of. There was not going to be one on Space Station Freedom. And again, I think that'll be the case until we have an in-flight death. There were some kind of comical, when you look at it from a kind of a black humor standpoint, engineers are real flippant, uh, especially when it comes to biomedical issues. So a lot of the engineers said, well, if you had a death, you just push them out the airlock, right? I mean, that isolates the crew from the body. Well, that is true, but you lose the capability of being able to do an autopsy. And unfortunately, when the flight dynamics people looked at it, if you shove the body outside, basically what it does is freeze, and then a couple orbits later, the body comes back. And so it becomes space debris. Uh, so that wouldn't be a very good, very good solution. Um, so um, eventually we'll need to solve that problem because eventually 
there will be an in-flight death. Rather sobering. Well, you know, it seems that there were a lot of planned capabilities for space station freedom that built on Skylab and that really would have, um, I think, enhanced our ability to diagnose and treat, at least to a limited extent, during those missions. I'm curious, um, and you've alluded to some of this already, what eventually happened? I mean, I know that Freedom was canceled, reconfigured, but can you give us a sense for what evolved sort of subsequent to, you know, this this sort of wish list or maximal capability in space at the time for medical care and sort of how that's transitioned to what we have currently? Well, before I try to answer that, let me also admit up front that that most of my knowledge on this subject is about three years old. So I can't really tell you if any something if anything significant has happened in terms of upgrading medical capability in-flight medical capability in the last three years. But having spent 22 years at NASA, I will be willing to wager that nothing has been done to enhance in-flight medical capability, and nothing will be done until we get a significant in-flight medical contingency that forces an early mission termination. But in essence, what you do is you incrementally upgrade your diagnostic and your therapeutic uh, capabilities. Uh, and that's that has become easier and easier given the, the improvement in technology that's happened in the last 10 or 15 years. And there there are a lot, there is a lot of technology that is now used in the operational military environment that could be used in a space environment as as well in terms of medical monitoring. So you were you were actually also at NASA during the time that the space station was was reconfigured and evolved into into the ISS. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe some of the trade-offs that had to occur and some of the frustrations regarding what what sounds like, you know, there had to be a lot of trade-offs for how things were reconfigured. Well, uh, I'll give you one that's kind of a personal frustration, and and that is that you got to remember the original one of the original major justifications of ISS was to do the necessary basic biomedical research, the bioastronautics research in space that would prepare us for extended duration lunar missions and extended duration missions to the to the Mars system. That really hasn't been done. And part of the reason is, you know, ISS was in essence kind of designed on the on the cheap. And it wasn't designed with a lot of automation in mind. On any given day on ISS, it takes at least three crew members to make sure that it doesn't fall out of the sky during the next 24 hours. Uh, that's a hyperbolic statement, but to a large extent it's true. So there's really not, if you only have a crew of three, that crew is busy doing maintenance for the station to keep it, to keep it going. So only when there's a crew of six can you do any meaningful meaningful science, especially biomedical science. And as both of you know, you, you have to have a large sample size to do meaningful, significant uh, biomedical research that gives you results that you can use, that gives you news you can use to plan for future missions. So... Unfortunately, the station has been a little underwhelming 
when it has come to biomedical research. For instance, this is year, I have to do the math always when I say this, but I think this is year 56 of human spaceflight. And we are no closer now to the gravity prescription than we were in 1961. And by gravity prescription, I mean we don't know the dose, we don't know the frequency, and we don't know the side effects for artificial gravity. And I'm talking about even for, for animals or, or plants. We, we, we don't know. The only thing that we really know for sure is that 1G, <clears throat> 24 hours a day, 7 days a week works, and that 0G, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, really does not work long term. We also know that the countermeasures that we have, you, you could not do in a settlement situation. And by settlement, I mean men, women, children, multiple generations. So we're going to have to determine the gravity prescription. And the prime question is, is 0.38G enough? Is that enough for people and the plants and animals upon which people subsist? And is that good enough for gestation, for uh, reproduction, um, organogenesis, gestation, birth, and developmental milestones? And you're talking 0.3HG as, as in, in Mars. Mars because if 3HG isn't enough, if you do the study to determine that 0.3HG is not sufficient, in one fell swoop, you can cross off Mars and cross off the moon as civilization destinations. Just to put the nail in the coffin, you cannot talk. In, in my mind, you cannot even think about talking of men, women, children, multiple generations on moon and Mars until you can prove that the gravity is sufficient to really support that. Otherwise, it's fantasy, sheer fantasy. It might be fun fantasy, but it's still fantasy. And based on what I know about evolutionary biology and what I know about space medicine, my prediction, I have no data, but my prediction as a so-called expert, and I'm using that in air quotes, okay, based on my training and my experience, I don't think 0.3HG will cut it. And 0.16G will really not cut it for men, women, children, multiple generations. So we need to figure out the gravity prescription. And, and Station should have already gotten us pretty far down the road on that by now. And it has not. And that is, a, a, quite frankly, an indictment against NASA and against the life sciences organization in NASA, and in my personal opinion. What do you think is going to prompt a change to that? Well, my silence ought to say everything. And until we get new and enlightened management that realizes that gravity is on the list of things that we as advanced complex organisms are going to have to take with us, uh, I think the situation won't change. 
The engineers don't want to have to deal with gravity. They don't want it. They don't like it. They don't want to have to deal with it. But you know what? It's interesting. I, 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 in my whole career, I never heard a life scientist claim that escape velocity was irrelevant. And yet, I hear a lot of engineers that claim that that life science is irrelevant. Yeah, well, the, the human engineering, if you will, is, is like I've heard you say it before. It is the, the tall, tall pole in the, in the tent for human flight. It's the tall pole in the tent. And until there's a recognition of that fact and NASA retools its expertise and its personnel accordingly, no progress will be made. Well, maybe just to sum up um, from your perspective, just any any final thoughts regarding your work on freedom and, um, you know, sort of the, the legacy of it or any regrets of what did not come to pass? Just want to get your final thoughts regarding uh, regarding those programs. Well, number one, I was real grateful for the experience. I, I realized that I was in a unique position to come up with, to, to manage the team that came up with the initial thinking of how to approach the problem of clinical care in space. Uh, that was a unique position to be in, and I was very grateful for that experience. My regrets, I've probably covered ad nauseum, um, and that is that we we couldn't get farther down the down the road, and and there were various reasons for that, some of which that were very valid, and others of which were were just pol- politics. Uh, so what we need is a a young, vibrant cohort of life science experts, both physicians, PhDs, nurses, PAs. Uh, biomedical engineers that are motivated by this vision of what do we need in order to support uh, the coming phase of interplanetary human spaceflight. Well, I'd say that's a a pretty good call to action. Well, I think, you know, as as you can tell, sometimes I unfortunately come across as you know, kind of the the old guy that's saying, get off my yard, you know, get off my lawn. But I, I consider my role now to to try to be, uh, to impart the lessons that I've learned to the next generation and to hand off both the progress and the problems to the next generation so they can take it from here. But if we don't, I'm saying we as a culture, we as a society, if we don't solve these problems or come up with a pretty good approach to mitigating these problems and managing these problems, uh, unfortunately, we ain't going anywhere. And so life sciences is an essential, an essential component of this whole interplanetary human spaceflight vision. And until it receives the priority that it deserves, not much is really going to happen other than pretty PowerPoint slides. Well, hopefully we can basically prove you wrong, just like uh, those type 2 or type 3 medical conditions that haven't happened so far. But we'll see what happens. But I think this was a a very insightful uh, discussion today. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much.
On behalf of Space3D, I hope you enjoyed part two of our interview with Jim Logan on Space Station Freedom's medical capabilities. In our next podcast, you'll hear from NASA cardiovascular physiologist John Charles, who discusses medical capabilities on the Space Shuttle, the Shuttle Mir program, and on the International Space Station. Join me, Eleanor Rangers, and my co-host, Emily Carney, for this fascinating discussion.